What does it mean to be a great communicator? Have you made your communication skills central to your professional identity and the way you move in the world? Let's dig into my six steps to being a better nurse communicator right here on episode 192 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I am grateful that you're listening, whether it's your first time tuning in or you've been hanging out with me for months or years here on the airwaves and in the ethers. Thank you for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, inspiration, and ideas that can get you moving in a positive and inspired direction. Meanwhile, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, you can follow along at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 192. So today we are talking about communication in the 21st century. So you might ask, Keith, what does that really mean? What does it mean to communicate in the 21st century? And I'll say, well, funny you should ask, communicating in the 21st century is multifaceted. We all know that we have email and text and social media and face-to-face, if any of us actually have real conversations anymore. And many of us don't really think about our communication style and developing and honing and sharpening our communication skills. However, it is super important for your relationships with your colleagues, with your relationships with patients and their families, and also if you think about it, your friends, your acquaintances, people you meet on the street, your family. Anything you do to develop your emotional intelligence, and your communication skills will serve you well in every single aspect of your life. I promise you that. Because communication is what human relationships are truly all about. And there are many different forms of communication. If you are a nurse out there, or a non-nurse, whatever you happen to do for a living, but if you're a nurse, for instance, whether you're in home care dialysis, if you're an entrepreneur like myself, you work in the ICU or a nursing home, everything you do has to be filtered through some form of communication, whether it's documenting what you did, giving report at the end of your shift, whatever it happens to be. And if you think about it, how many conversations of varying lengths do you have during the course let's say, of an average shift as a nurse. Or extrapolate that out, how many conversations and verbal interactions do you have in the course of a week at home, out in the community, and at work? And also think about the number of phone conversations you have, the emails that you send, the texts that you exchange with people. This all impacts your brand as a person as a professional, and it impacts the quality of your relationships in the moment and also over time. 
If you've been listening for a while, you probably know that I am a 100% self-employed nurse entrepreneur. I call myself a pajamapreneur. I work in my house much of the time. Sometimes I go out in the community, but I don't get out much. No, actually, I do get out quite a bit. But I have a lot of conversations. I talk with my career coaching clients. I network with people all over the country and all over the world all the time by phone, Skype, Zoom, email, text, LinkedIn, social media, you name it. So even when I'm here sitting at my desk in my pajamas or not in my pajamas and George the cat is sitting here watching me work, there is communication happening throughout my day. And if I go through an entire day without communicating with someone outside the house, it is a rare day indeed, but at least I communicate with Mary and George when I'm at home. But there's plenty of other opportunities, trust me. So if you're a nurse, a healthcare provider, or you do anything else out there in the world, your ability to speak well, to listen well, to understand and be understood is paramount in your life and paramount in your career. But where do we learn these skills? Do they sit you down in nursing school and teach you communication? Well, maybe some nursing programs. And if you had an actual course in communication or a really awesome workshop or something else, please email me at keith at nursekeith.com and tell me what that was about, what it was like, and if you learned valuable skills. I would like to know if any of those cutting-edge nursing schools out there are actually teaching communication skills. Yes, some nursing schools might teach you about therapeutic use of self and speaking with patients, etc. However, it doesn't really go much further than that, if it does that at all. So we're going to talk about my six steps to stronger communication skills in the 21st century. And we are going to begin with step one, electronic communication. Like I mentioned just a few moments ago, we've got social media, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. We've got LinkedIn. We have emails. We have texts. We have all these different ways that we communicate in writing in some way, electronically. Now, I use a lot of video. I use Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, that awful Google Hangouts. I don't use that much anymore. Facebook video chat, WhatsApp. And a lot of these, well, all of these platforms allow for sort of a face-to-face conversation. You can actually see the person. And yes, I would like to have a computer where rather than staring at the camera up at the top, I can actually look at the person on my screen and actually be looking in their eyes. And someday someone's going to invent something where you can actually make eye contact with the person on the other end of the screen. If you're ever having those conversations on a video app where the person is looking, you know, they're looking at your image, but they're not looking up at the camera. So their eyes never come up and quote unquote, meet yours. That is really awkward. So Talk to me in 10, 20, 50, well, I'll be dead in 50 years, 20 years, and let's see what kind of technologies emerge and how we can make those video conversations come alive even more. That said, electronically, when you're talking 
on a video app, I highly recommend looking at the camera so that the person on the other end can have the sensation, the perception that you are actually looking at them. Now you can look down periodically at their picture, but make sure you look at the camera, know where the camera is on your device so that they can get that feeling that you are actually looking at them. And if you're comfortable, you can ask them to do the same so that you can feel like there's a little more recognition that there's a real person there. Now, when it comes to emails and texting, there are a lot of written and mostly unwritten and unspoken forms of etiquette in email. Like those people who send emails to 30 of their friends or colleagues and don't blind carbon copy everyone. And then people start replying to all and your inbox blows up. Don't get me started. Texting is even worse. Group texts, please don't send me group texts because those can blow up too. And all of a sudden you're getting texts every 30, 10, five seconds, and it's driving you absolutely crazy, especially if it's a conversation you're not interested in. So please make sure that you blind carbon copy people on mass emails, unless you know all of those people know each other and they should be aware of who else is in the thread, or make sure you let them know not to reply to all if you don't blind carbon copy them. Be really careful in your communication by email and texting. You know, there isn't a whole lot of nuance when you're typing. Yes, we have emoticons. Yes, we have GIFs or GIFs, however you want to pronounce it. That adds a little emotional context, but our tone cannot be perceived. Our body language cannot be perceived. So if you're one to fly off the handle, if you're one to try to process emotional stuff through email or text, stop it right now. Whether it's at work or at home, that kind of processing, that kind of conversation needs to happen face-to-face or over the phone at least, not in the written word because nuance is lost. And you can lose relationships and damage relationships if your electronic communications aren't clean and concise and clear and without those subtle aspects that can make it difficult for someone to construe exactly what it is you were trying to say. Now, we can all use these things like LOL and all these other abbreviations that help us get some sort of emotional or often pithy or funny thought across. But if you have something serious, just think twice between sending an angry email back or reacting off the cuff to something someone wrote to you. Make sure you wait to hit send and make sure you even sleep on it and then consider a different way to communicate difficult feelings or have difficult conversations through electronic means. There's plenty more to say about this, but I recommend that you think about the ways that you communicate with people. There's wonderful ways to use Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and LinkedIn, and I use them all. Well, I didn't use Snapchat because I'm over 40 and I can't figure the thing out. But beyond that, I use lots of different ways to communicate with people. If someone reaches out to me on LinkedIn and I find them very interesting, I accept their initiation of our new relationship. And then I write them and say, Hey, your profile looks cool. I like what you do. Let's hop on the phone and have a conversation. Let's jump on Skype or FaceTime and actually see what each other looks like. 
So you can take those electronic relationships to the next level. That is how I have created some incredible relationships, friendships, and business partnerships in the course of my career. And I recommend you consider doing the same. Now, step number two, let's talk about difficult people and conflict, especially in the healthcare workplace. We know that the 21st century healthcare work environment can be super, super stressful and anxious people, stressed out people, and difficult people are in abundance. Whether it's a physician who's rounding and is really curt with you and doesn't give you the time of the day, or other nurses who seem like they don't even want to have a conversation with you about anything, or patients and families who are really worried and anxious and at the end of their tether, and they need you to answer their questions that often require complex responses. Learning to navigate conflict is really what nurses and healthcare professionals need to learn. It's what you need to learn, dear listener. If you are the kind of person who doesn't know how to handle conflict, this is something to think about. If you blame others or blame yourself as an easy way out without actually having that difficult conversation, that's not necessarily a very prudent practice. Are you averse to confronting a person when you have something to say about their behavior or something they've done or something they've said? I am and have been throughout my life very conflict averse, and I've learned very slowly because I'm a slow learner. You heard it here first. Conflict can be navigated, but it's difficult for me. That comes from my childhood. It's a long story. This isn't psychotherapy. I don't want you to psychoanalyze me because I'm your podcast host here. However, I'll just say that I have had to overcome the lack of ability to manage conflict that my parents demonstrated for me and modeled for me as a child. Just saying. If you have been able to engage in difficult conversations and manage conflict, but you think you could do it better, there's plenty you can learn in order to do that. And I just want to remind you what I said during step number one, please, please do not process hurt feelings and difficult issues by email or text, especially if it involves your hurt feelings or deep emotions. That is definitely not a venue to do that. So learning to handle conflict is important. We could do an entire course on conflict resolution and conflict management and learning how to manage and navigate conflict. If this is something you want, there's plenty of ways to learn it. And I recommend doing the reading and the research and putting in the sweat equity to become a person who is much more adept at handling conflict. Speaking of conflict, speaking of relationships, boundaries, it's no, it's not a new agey concept. It is a real psychological concept. Personal boundaries are so important for you in your work, at home, in your friendships, in the store, wherever you happen to be. We nurses, <laughs> we are often so tuned into the needs of other people, what people need from us, what people are desiring, 
how we think we can help them and make things better for them, that we often set aside our own needs and we can often violate our own personal boundaries because we think we should or we're supposed to or because we are too nice. So one of the most important aspects of being able to set boundaries is to know your limits. And yes, your limits will change over time and they will be different in different relationships and different circumstances and different environments. Your limits with your 13-year-old son are going to be different than your limits with your 57-year-old superior at work or with, let's say, your direct report at work, a nurse's aide who reports to you, or maybe with the physical therapist that you share patients with. There is anecdotal evidence out there that millennials, the folks who were born around in and around the millennium, of course, that millennials are much, much better and adept at standing up for themselves, refusing overtime, refusing extra shifts, honoring their days off, honoring the special occasions that they have in their lives and saying, nah, I can't work. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll do it next time. Whereas baby boomers, Gen Xers like myself, etc., have a much harder time saying no and will often go against their own best interests and go in for that extra shift because they feel beholden to do so. They feel like they need to fix everyone and fix everything for everyone. And it seems like in the millennial generation, there is this desire and this not compulsion, but a interest in one's own needs. And while millennials often get castigated for this, I wouldn't cast aspersions on them. I think we can learn from them. Learn to say no. Learn to say, yeah, I'm not going to work this weekend. It's my parents' anniversary and sorry, I can't be there. You know, or no, I'm not working on Wednesday. It's my birthday. You can find someone else to cover for you. Check with me next time. Being able to say that can be so difficult for so many of us, especially for most of us nurses who are people pleasers. You know, my friend Barbie Dossie once told me that a large percentage of nurses are adult children of alcoholics. There's lots of theories about that, but we can see that those types of boundary issues that come up for ACOAs and people in alcoholic or addictive families are big, and we need to learn how to stick up for ourselves, even if we didn't learn to do it as children. Boundaries come into play in every aspect of your life. When you're working with patients, you know, I've worked in home health and hospice, and I've done intensive outreach where I was hanging out in patients' homes and meeting their families and helping them with all aspects, almost like a social worker nurse in a way. And man, I definitely stretched my boundaries in some really major ways. And I got involved in family conflicts. Um, several times, I think I loaned a little bit of money to a patient or gave them a little bit of money or, you know, I made some mistakes and I'm not proud of it. And we all need to figure out where things can get sticky and where we can make different choices so that we can have healthy boundaries at work, especially with patients and their families. So we do not overextend ourselves so that when we're emotionally 
intimate with a patient and their family, for instance, we know where the line is. Of course, we know we shouldn't be physically or sexually intimate with the patient or their family members. I know it happens sometimes. There's no excuse, but there's also that emotional tether that can happen. And of course, when you're caring for someone on their deathbed and you're really hanging out and spending time with their family, supporting them, a lot of emotions come up. However, you need to learn how to handle those boundaries so that you can say no when you need to. And also not feel compelled to offer more than is prudent or legal or even ethically or morally correct or admissible. We get into trouble when we violate our own boundaries. Of course, we get into trouble when we violate other people's boundaries. But what's most important is to recognize our own. Where do we end and where's the next person begin? Children don't know how to do that. They learn it over time. They learn that there's a barrier between myself and mommy, that she's a different person, but it takes time to get there. But as we grow up, sometimes we don't learn some of those lessons and it's hard for us to say firmly, no, or to say firmly, I can't do that, or to say firmly, you can't do that. Now, boundaries come up in your relationships with other people at work, and this comes back to step two, difficult people in conflict. Like my friend Renee Thompson says, and she was just on the most recent episode of The Nurse Keith Show, episode 191, Renee Thompson often says that we need to learn how to protect our personal boundaries in terms of bullies, people who are emotionally unhealthy at work, people who are harassers, intimidators, people who will try to get your goat or try to sabotage you or do anything in their power to make you feel bad about yourself. Boundaries means when a physician says something unkind to you, you do what Renee Thompson recommends to bullyproof yourself and you say, hey, Dr. Carson, you just bit my head off and turned around and walked away before I even had a chance to respond. That's not okay with me. Let's have a conversation. So naming the way that the other person is violating your boundaries is just as important as your ability to honor your own boundaries and the boundaries of others. So if you can feel good about yourself, having firm boundaries, understanding where you end and the other person begins and where your limits are, you will do yourself so many favors in the course of your career and also in your personal life outside of the workplace. And if you can handle those difficult people and you can handle conflict in an intelligent, thoughtful way, you're also doing yourself a favor. And going back to step one, If you can master electronic communication and learn not to fly off the handle and learn how to navigate and manage all of those different ways that you communicate with people electronically, that will serve you well in your life as well. When we come back from the break, we are going to talk about steps four, five, and six in becoming a better and amazing and competent nurse communicator. We'll be right back.
So we are going to take a pause for the cause just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much, they give just a little bit each month to support the work that we're doing here at The Nurse Keith Show and NurseKeith.com. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you can also get some pretty cool premiums and prizes from me based on how much you decide to pledge on a monthly basis. Head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nurse Keith to read all about it. Also, please consider signing up for my newsletter at nursekeith.com so you can receive that newsletter every other week and leave a rating and review of the Nurse Keith Show on your favorite podcast app. iTunes and Apple Podcast is an awesome place for you to do so but you can also leave a rating review of nursekeith.com and the Nurse Keith Show over at facebook.com forward slash nursekeithcoaching. Finally, I will say that if you or the place where you work or any of your colleagues or leaders would like an inspiring motivational speaker for any of your events coming up, or if you belong to an association that's looking for speakers, please send them my way or shoot me an email at keith at nursekeith.com and let me know where the conference is, when it is, and who to contact, and I will reach out because I love speaking on stage. So let me know if there's any way I can come out and work with you and inspire you and your colleagues and your place of work with a motivational workshop or keynote presentation. And we're back. Thanks for hanging out here at the Nurse Keith Show, episode 192. I am so glad you're here with me. We have been talking about my six steps to being a better nurse communicator. We covered steps one through three. Number one being electronic communication. Number two being difficult people in conflict. And number three being managing your personal and professional boundaries. Now, number four, we're going to talk about the written word. Yes, of course, we've already talked about electronic communication, and yes, the written word is involved in that, but this needed its own category because there are lots of other ways you communicate or can choose to communicate with the written word as well. So first, yes, emailing, texting, social media, be super careful, know what you're doing, know what you're saying, know why you're saying it, who you're saying it to, and if it's something you truly want to say, because once you put it out there, you cannot take it back. However, the written word comes into play in other places as well. Clinical documentation. We all learned in nursing school ad nauseum, you're probably rolling your eyes right now, that if you don't write it down, it never happened. Clinical documentation is one of the ways that you communicate. It may not be direct communication, but if you fill out that INO form, the next nurse will know how much urine that person put out and how much fluids they took in. If you write out what the doctor ordered for that patient and you write the order correctly and get it signed, that is excellent communication as well. Now, What else do we do in career coaching? Oh, we work on resumes and cover letters and your LinkedIn profile and thank you letters you write to your interviewers after you go for a job interview at a new employer. Those are ways where 
written communication is paramount for your success. A resume isn't always the thing that's going to get you a job, but your resume needs to be flawless and your cover letters and thank you letters too. And your LinkedIn profile needs to be kick butt. So you need to learn how to use the written word to your benefit as a professional. Building a personal and professional brand is reflected in how you conduct yourself online, the way that you chat with people, let's say on LinkedIn or Facebook, the ways in which you communicate in writing to, let's say, writing a note to your supervisor about something you observed on the unit. Or perhaps you're involved in a committee at work, let's say shared governance, or let's say a policies and procedures committee. You're coming up with new protocols for the ICU. Those need to be written down perfectly. They need to be seamless and flawless. If you're involved in writing proposals or protocols or procedures, or maybe you're on the shared governance committee and you're writing a report, or maybe, just maybe, you're involved in nursing education and you're writing reviews of nursing students' essays, for instance, or you're writing a personal recommendation for someone for a job, you're being a reference. That is another way that you communicate in writing that is so important to who you are and how you communicate with people in real life outside of the electronic realm. Also, some of you might be involved, let's say, in grant writing. Grant writing is completely reliant on excellent written communication skills. So if you would like to get into the grant writing business, or you would like to be involved in that, say with the nonprofit that you volunteer for, or a nonprofit you work for, then you need to make sure you know your craft as a writer. And I'm not saying writing the great American novel, I'm saying knowing how to write a business letter, knowing how to write a grant, knowing how to write a proposal or an article or a blog post. Written communication, speaking of blog posts, can also help your career. Let's say you decide to start a nursing blog and communicate with a audience about something you care about in terms of nursing or healthcare or something outside of nursing and healthcare. Your written word is going to be communicating what it is you want to get across to your audience. So know how to write so that you can get your point across. As a nurse, you might decide to write letters to your members of Congress or senators, or maybe your state representatives or your mayor or your city council, knowing how to craft those letters so that those elected officials will listen to what you as a professional nurse have to say is super important. So know how to do it. And if you're uncomfortable with the written word, take a course, take a class, study a book, Engage with me, engage with a writing coach, learn how to do these things, and the benefits will follow as your skills increase. Writing is a super powerful medium, and many nurses, maybe you, dear listener, are leveraging your writing skills to their advantage, whether as entrepreneurs, as clinicians, as educators, etc. If you want to take your writing skills to the next level, it can be done. Now, step number five is something I've talked about here before, 
and we'll continue to talk about because it's important. And I have written about it on my blog and in other articles ad nauseum, and we'll continue to do so because it's so important. And what are those? Emotional intelligence and relational intelligence. So developing your emotional and relational intelligence helps you to be a better communicator. Why is that? Well, emotional intelligence has to do with your ability to be aware of and control your own emotions and to read and respond empathetically and appropriately to the emotions that you perceive in others. Your emotional quotient, your EQ, is the measure of your emotional intelligence. And if you want to read Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, there's plenty there for you to dig into, or just Google articles on emotional intelligence. There is plenty out there to read. So being sensitive to the feelings of others means that when you're engaged in a difficult or conflictual conversation with maybe a difficult person, you are able to read their body language, read their energy, to understand what's happening for them, and to be able to be empathetic and compassionate in your communication. If you are not able to read the emotions of others, you might run roughshod over somebody without even meaning to because you're just not aware. And believe me, emotional intelligence and relational intelligence are not inborn. You can learn them. These are learnable skills. They can actually be taught. And it is in the interest of every healthcare professional out there to develop their emotional intelligence and their relational intelligence. And it's in the best interest of institutions that employ healthcare professionals to help their employees to do that. But so few organizations even consider this necessary, and it's probably not even on their radar. So an emotionally intelligent nurse can listen to an angry patient or a patient's family member assess that person's emotional state, and then respond in a way that's measured and calm and keeps the nurse's own reactions in check because that nurse is in touch with his or her feelings and knows whether or not to respond in a particular way. Staying calm and rational in conflict is an important skill. This is something that you can learn, and emotional intelligence and relational intelligence are where the rubber hits the road in this particular manner. Relational intelligence means you can take your emotional intelligence, your ability to read others' emotions, and read and respond to your own emotions, and relate to other people taking those aspects into consideration. You probably can think of a person right now who is very unintelligent emotionally and relationally, a person who doesn't seem to care at all or notice what you are feeling when you're interacting with them, for instance. What is it about that that sets you off? Why, when someone doesn't recognize how you're feeling and then they run right over you like a steamroller conversationally, what is that about? How can you learn to not be that kind of person? And if you're aware that you are not very emotionally intelligent, or maybe you are emotionally intelligent, but your relating with people is difficult because maybe you're an introvert, 
Or maybe you have Asperger's syndrome, and it's just hard for you to read emotions. You can still learn how to do it. So for stronger relationships, clearer communication, greater understanding between you and other people, emotional intelligence and relational intelligence are the place to put a stake in the ground and learn some really awesome skills. Finally, step six, miscellaneous communication strategies. And yes, I know I'm probably forgetting a ton of them and I'll probably have to do a follow-up with more, but these are the ones that have really been on my mind lately, aside from what we've done in steps one through five. And the miscellaneous ones are as follows. Body language. Do you cross your arms when you're talking to people? Is that an open expression of your willingness to listen and to hear and be heard? No. Crossing your arms and crossing your legs when you're in conversation means that you're closed. If you expose your belly, expose your thorax like a puppy does when the puppy lays on its back and exposes its belly. What does that mean? It means vulnerability. It means you're open for business. Watch your body language. Watch your posture, your facial expressions, what you do with your legs and arms while you're talking. Make sure your facial expressions match your words. You might be smiling, but you might be saying something that's pretty hurtful, or you might be scowling, but saying something nice. And that cognitive dissonance is going to cause a little conflict between you and the person receiving your communication. Make sure that you understand the rules of eye contact. Generally, in most cultures and circumstances, making eye contact during conversation is highly recommended and is appropriate. However, Cultural differences are another aspect of communication that you need to understand. And in many associate and bachelor's nursing programs, I know there are often courses on cultural competence. And yes, sometimes it's just lip service, but it is very, very, very important. So if you are working in the Latino community, Understand how Latinos and Hispanics use their bodies, how use their voice, how they make eye contact. If you work with Asian communities, understand that certain types of eye contact in certain circumstances are frowned upon in certain Asian cultures, but not in others. If you work with Native Americans, for instance, there's going to be another layer of subtlety and nuance in communication and body language and eye contact and humor and tone of voice and everything related to communication. So cultural competence is super, super important. Now, language is also crucial. And I mean language in the broadest sense of the word. So let's say in your current work, you are coming into more and more contact with members of the transgender community, for instance. So when that transgender patient walks through the door, are you assuming that they're a man or a woman? Are you assuming what pronoun they want to be addressed as? There are people in the non-binary community or the gender fluid community who don't like his or her or him and he and she. They like to use they and them because it's a non-gendered neutral 
form of pronoun and a way of addressing a person. Do not make assumptions about how someone wants to be addressed. Do not make assumptions about the language that a person will understand or the types of vocabulary that they will understand. Meet them at their level. If you have a patient who is a man in the transition process to becoming female, you might want to ask that person, say, I'm not really sure how to address you. What pronoun do you prefer? Or what name do you prefer? Do you want me not to mark gender at all? Etc. So language is important, not just the language the person speaks like Spanish, French, Portuguese, or English, or Swahili. It also has to do with choice of words and the way you address people. So language, super crucial. Make sure you are sensitive to it. And if there are things you need to learn about the populations of patients or people with whom you interact, ask questions, show curiosity, learn, and then apply those learnings and teach your colleagues and your friends and acquaintances the same skills you're learning because you can use them to navigate any aspect of your life and career. Now, one last thing is listening. Yes, listening is so important. It's been said that we have two ears and one mouth so that we will listen twice as much as we talk. Now, I am talking here ad nauseum because I'm on the microphone and you're a captive audience, though you could turn off the podcast right now if you choose to, or maybe you already turned it off and you're not even hearing this, but be that as it may. Yes, two ears, one mouth. When you're in conversation, are you constantly thinking about what you're going to say next so you don't even hear what the other person is saying because you're planning your rebuttal before they've even finished their statement? Think about the ways you comport yourself during conversations and communication and think think about whether there are other ways and other strategies and techniques to employ so that you can be a better listener and a better communicator when you choose to speak your mind. Overall, communication is key in any industry, in any relationship, in any aspect of your life you can possibly think of. Going to the grocery store, reporting for work, writing a resume or cover letter, sitting in an interview, speaking with a dying patient and their family, talking to your child's teacher during a parent-teacher conference, whatever it happens to be, communication is key. So these strategies and techniques and many, many others can be studied by you, can be learned, can be internalized and put into practice. Whether it's step one, electronic communication, step two, dealing with difficult people in conflict, Step three, learning how to strengthen your personal boundaries and honor the boundaries of others. Step four, focusing on the written word and how you communicate yourself in writing. Step five, developing your emotional and relational intelligence. And finally, step six, miscellaneous communication strategies that I just covered in the last five to six minutes. So there's so much to learn There is so much to know. 21st century life is very complicated. If you have a particular situation coming up at work and you would like to speak with me about that, especially if it has to do with anything we're talking about today, 
shoot me an email at keith at nursekeith.com. We can have a conversation and figure out how to make sure your communications and conversations can be smoother, more easeful, and more effective. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to The Nurse Keith Show. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered by this episode. And if you want to see the show notes, remember they're at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 192. The Nurse Keith Show is edited and produced by Tim Hollowell and his team at thepodcastinggroup.com. And social media and promotion are handled by the wonderful Mark Cappy Spiesen, my eternal and ongoing thanks to Tim and his team and to Mark for their help with making Nurse Keith Coaching and Nurse Keith Show what they are. I want you to stay positive, care for yourself and others, take inspired action in the interest of your career, and tune in again and again and again as we explore how to take your life and career to the next level. And coming up on episode 193, the amazing Nadine Grzkowiak, the owner behind glutenfreern.com. So if you want to hear Nadine's story and hear all about celiac disease, gluten intolerance, etc., etc., tune into episode 193. And if you missed episode 191 with Dr. Renee Thompson talking about nurse bullying, Healthy Workforce Institute, Healthy Work Environments, and Incivility in the Workplace, definitely check out episode 191. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch, and adios till next time from Nurse Keith here in beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. (laughs) 